Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for intel, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull, and I sure appreciate you joining us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions customized for your business, contact bullrealty.com or reach out to me directly. Well, we have an incredible show for you today. We're going to look at the economic outlook and the impact on real estate. When you think about what's been going on in the economy, there's a lot of moving targets, interest rates changing. We have tariffs, we have rising construction costs, uh, we have deregulation. You know, we have so much going on. What does it mean and where are we in the cycle? What will be the impact of rising rates? What will be the impact long term of tariffs? What will be the impact long term of the tax reductions that we've had? Have we seen the impact yet? What will be the impact of elections moving forward? Well, we're going to look at all that and a lot more. Please welcome my guest is KC Conway. And KC is the senior economist with the CCIM Institute. He's here in Studio One. KC, thanks for being with us again. Thanks, Michael. It's always a treat to be with you. Well, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, when we look at the overall economy, I think we've been in such a great cycle. You know, things have been going so well for so long. You know, people get a little nervous. <laughs> you know, what are you seeing out there for the overall economy and, and kind of where we're headed? You know, great question. You know, it was funny how we talk, you know, two years is so long is a good time after eight years of such a bad time. So overall, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish um, mm -hmm. with two caveats. I think the, the November uh, 6th elections mm -hmm. and then what's going on with tariffs. But uh, we got the ADP job numbers this morning, which were plus 230,000 and, and, and a great uh, upside, I guess. And um, 165,000 of those jobs are small business, so those companies under 500 employees. So really what's propelling this is the small business, GDP. Uh, we're gonna get a first read on our third quarter GDP here at the end of the month. I think it will be tempered down a little bit from 4% because I think we've brought forward a little bit of third quarter, I mean, a third quarter activity in the second quarter, people trying to mitigate the tariffs and move goods in and out. Um, so overall, I'm, I'm optimistic. The business optimism, small business, home builder optimism, they're all in, in, in near record or at record territories. So what do you expect moving forward with related to jobs and unemployment and then and uh, wage growth? Yeah. So wage growth, we just had the announcement by Amazon, right? We're going to, you know, they're going to go to $15 an hour on the heels of Target and Walmart doing it last year. So I think we're, we're, we're seeing that the workforce is so tight. I think we, we will likely see the unemployment job numbers probably dip down into as low as three and a half percent here before the end of the year. Wow. Um, pay attention to the U6 rate, which is the total unemployment rate, not kind of the U3 made up one, <laughs> um, but it covers everybody. And we're still well above 6% of the workforce. Uh, there's a big skills gap. Companies are adapting to uh, the lack of workforce using technology, whether it's artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, robotics, so um, you know, self-service kiosks at fast food restaurants. So I think um, our biggest challenge on job growth is we don't have 200,000 available workers every month, month after month, to be to be employed. Um, so we're going to be turning to efficiencies, technology uh, to solve those problems. And does that cause more? wage growth and give consumers uh, more confidence and more spending ability? It should. Um, I think that companies are you know, willing to move the goalposts, like Amazon, to make that step. Mm -hmm. I mean, I forget how many hundreds of millions of dollars that was as a hit to, uh, to Amazon, but I, I heard they only had to in increase the prime membership rate $20 and they can cover it pretty easily. But I think it does, and I think the other thing is this NAFTA II agreement, mm -hmm. the USMCA also helps out because it is actually going to have a spillover effect of helping reinforce and build that middle class in uh, in Mexico, the way the agreement structures on wage rates. So I think we're finally seeing you know where those wage rates grow, and that spills over into a lot of aspects of the economy. Yeah, and you mentioned Mexico. What do you think about the tariffs and the impact so far? And what do you expect long term from you know these kind of trade wars that people are calling them wars? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything's a war anymore, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gotta have it for the headlines. Yeah. So the, this tariff agreement was pretty innovative. Mm -hmm. um, so traditionally what we've done, old NAFTA and other tariffs, mm -hmm. is we've had a percentage of the components that had to be manufactured or assembled in the country uh, where the good is, is sold. And generally that's been around 60, 62% for us. This new agreement says something different. Mm -hmm. So it says that 75% of the goods manufactured, in particular autos, 
have to be manufactured in the North American trade region. So that brings all of us, Canada, Mexico, and the United States into one block, which is really something that threatens and concerns China. The second thing it did is it said, instead of looking at the components just in one country, those components have to be made uh, or assembled in a high wage environment. And what they mm -hmm. define that as $16 an hour. Mm -hmm. So what that does is it puts Canada, US, and Mexico on the same level. It means Mexico is gonna have to raise those wage rates or maybe adopt more robotic technologies to be efficiency, to be efficient. And uh, that spills over, that builds their middle class, that creates more goods for us. So I think it's a really, really good thing, a really innovative approach that they did. And I think a lot more good stuff to come out of the tariffs. And is it good? long-term KC or short-term? We're hearing some people talk about some increase in construction costs because of steel, because of, of the rising cost of some of these goods because of the tariffs. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the tariffs absolutely use the 200 and something billion on China. That affects uh, a lot, a lot on the steel. This will create some uh, some relief because a lot of our steel could come in through Canada and, uh, and other countries. I think we'll see a European tariff agreement or, or trade agreement follow very soon after the elections as well. My bigger concern that you raise on the, const on the, on the inflation side, particularly for us affecting on commercial real estate, is construction and labor costs are rising pretty dramatically. Last year, a year ago this time, we had Harvey and Irma affect us, and we've been dealing with the impacts of the rebuilding on construction costs and labor from that. Now we have Florence on the heels of that, and uh, so I think you know the you know trying to find sheetrock and wallboard and lumber and, and shingles and asphalt paving and concrete mix is going to get increasingly uh, more difficult. I use a resource called ENR, Engineering News Record, and they have a great construction economics section in there. And they were telling us a year ago these construction materials and costs were rising about three to four percent, double what the Fed would like. We're now seeing those at ten to fifteen percent. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're a developer and you're putting a new project in the ground today, and uh, have uh, you know budgeted a two-year cycle to deliver that deal, you're probably looking at twenty percent plus construction costs during that construction cycle. So if all you've got is 80%, you know, if you have an 80% loan to cost deal and 20% equity in the deal, you better hope that you, uh, you got some NOI growth in there when you deliver that project. Yeah, well, that's an example that just hit me. I had an office build out just get delayed uh, because some of the workforce was in, or in the Carolinas. You know, hey, we're having to do emergency work. We can't do your demo. And it slowed down a, an office lease deal. So I see that. What about the impact, Casey, on rising construction costs on new supply? You know, I think uh, we always talk about barrier to entry being a, a good thing. If construction costs are rising that much, uh, does that have an impact on commercial real estate values moving forward? I think it does, mm -hmm. and I think we're seeing that. We're seeing it in housing. You've seen it at single family where we're only building about a million one single family homes. And if you talk to the builders, the, what's missing is the extra 250,000 of affordable entry housing, that under $300,000 price point. And what the builders are saying is, we just can't make the numbers work anymore on a margin or cost basis for that entry level affordable housing. We're seeing that spill over into multifamily. The projects are getting harder to pencil. That's why you see more builders trying to go back and ask municipalities, little more density, smaller units, uh, really trying to push the rents and everything there uh, to offset those costs. On office, we see companies responding by they're putting more employees in less space. Right? So we'll, we'll absorb the higher per square foot rent, but our total rent costs or overall occupancy is going to come down. So it absolutely, I think, has a dampening effect, mm -hmm. which is, in a way, a good thing. We don't recreate the ills of the past and overbuild. So back to single family housing for a moment, which used to be a big indicator of and, and changing the economy, right? Uh, so you think these homes that are under 300,000 people who own those homes uh, or somehow can develop them, uh, they're in a good spot? Absolutely. Um, and so it's interesting how we're seeing. So one thing it does, if you, you've got an existing home or you're a baby boomer that wants to unload it, existing homes, that's where we're going to be turning to the inventory. So while the home prices have been a little slower on the existing homes, we're now seeing that pick up quite a bit. We're also going to see some new product. So here in, in Atlanta, we have a good example. Uh, the Selig folks have over on the West End, West Side Development. Um, we are now seeing the creation of 11-foot-wide townhomes mm -hmm. under $300,000 that are only 600 square feet. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know it's whether the millennials are just so fit they don't need wide corridors like maybe us that are baby boomers and a little wider with a little more gravity affecting us, but we're <laughs> gonna see new product. Um, 
uh, that's smaller, uh, denser to get to that price point. And it's also this younger generation that has seen the rents rise pretty dramatically. So if, those of you that are in a market, in a West Coast market or Denver or places like that, you've seen a one bedroom apartment rent basically double in a three year period of time. Mm -hmm. So how can you combat that? It's maybe buy into a, a smaller high density unit. So I think we're gonna see some product differentiation. So are potentially these raise, rising rents on the multifamily this increased value on homes under 300,000, um, creating more value for consumers that own all these homes. You look around the country, we think most consumers, the homeowners' homes are probably under 300,000. Now, do they have more spendable income? Do they go, like, what, what do we do in the last cycle? We go out and refinance our house and go have some fun with it? <laughs> no, I think you're exactly right. So we have seen mortgage applications on refinance go back up as they've seen more of the value of that house go up. We're also seeing an uptick in home equity line of credits, again, at the banks and the banks pushing that product because the, the value is there in the home. So again, it's kind of that piggy bank comes back to life and yeah. somebody magically we fill the piggy bank up again. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> well, it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I think debt does concern people when they're when they're looking at the cycle and uh, what might you know how that might impact when the cycle does turn, how bad it will be. And so uh, we're going to take a short break, and I want to ask you about debt. I want to ask you about mortgages. We're starting to see interest rates rise for commercial real estate. We're starting to see some cap rate rises. So I want to get your opinion on that. So stay with us. We'll take a short break. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like access to invest in institutional quality commercial real estate with experienced sponsors with small amounts of money? Of course you would. Visit realcrowd.com. Choose between core, core plus, value add, or opportunistic. Visit realcrowd.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. The segment's brought to you by BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I. They are the standard for education and facilities and property management. Check them out at BOMI.org. Well, today we're talking about the economic outlook and the impact on real estate moving forward. My guest is Casey Conway. He's a senior economist with CCIM Institute. And before the break, we were talking about you know rising rates and, and the debt that real estate and properties have on them at this point in the cycle and, and maybe even consumers as well. So, you know, what do you see moving forward in, in the in the debt world? Do do we have a lot of debt compared to the last cycle on on commercial real estate? Yeah, great great question, Michael. Mm -hmm. So you know, people think with Dodd-Frank we solved all the, you know, CRE concentration problems and debt problems and everything's perfectly rebalanced. So I am concerned. I called at the uh, beginning of this year for four rate hikes. People thought I was a little crazy and I, I, I projected it would be in a, a hike, pause, hike, pause pattern, which we've seen March, June, September. I think we get another one in December. And uh, so people have got to kind of go back in our real estate world and dust off the old band of investment uh, theory where you look at your cost of your different capital structures between debt and equity and see what it tells you about a cap rate. What at, at a two and a half, 10 year treasury interest rates where they were a year ago, you could justify doing deals at a, at a sub -cap, six cap rate deal. Now we're at a 310 heading toward 325, 350. It's gonna get increasingly difficult to justify those deals based on your capital structure at below a six and a half to seven. So. I think what it means is the fundamentals got to come back. You, you got you got to adjust to we're in a higher cap rate environment. This isn't the end of the world. People forget in 2004 to six the economy was pretty good. The Fed raised rates 16 times, mm -hmm. and we got back to a five five percent ten year treasury. Mm -hmm. I think we're headed back to a five percent ten year treasury over an 18 to 24 month period of time. Mm -hmm. And what it really means is the fundamentals. If you have that kind of cap rate or debt cost increase, is you got to look to NOI growth. So are the fundamentals there? Is the economy growing? Do we have the job growth? Are, are those there? So I don't think the Fed is through. I think they do raise in, September, in December. I think we get um, three more hikes next year. And um, 
and off to the races we go. So three more rate hikes next year. So you think you will have a corresponding uh, cap rate increase uh, of some amount, right? Because of of, of that spread, that the investors are just going to have to do it. Yeah, historically it <clears throat> lags by about a year to 18 months, the cap rate move, uh, because you have financing in place, you have commitments. My big concern is those that have construction loans mm -hmm. that are maturing and they've got to go into the permanent debt market. So the CMBS securitization market, the life company market, they're already readjusting those expectations now. So I think the hit comes really into the permanent debt market when you've got to move something that you've done a value add or a construction and you better be you better be doing sensitivity to look at what a six and a half or seven cap rate is. Probably one exception to the rule, industrial. I don't mm -hmm. know if there's any, they're defying gravity. Uh, everything's about supply chain. The, the new retail is industrial. So I think industrial stays strong. I think apartments, it, it's, it's stable. We're getting two to 4% rent increases. Uh, costs aren't going up, you know, from the operation standpoint that much. Uh, so I think you can you can make it work on multifamily, but you can't just keep pushing and assuming it's all going to be luxury. You're going to have to work with that mix. And I guess the cycle has to turn at some point. So how do you feel about the levels of debt we have in commercial real estate as compared to the last cycle? So I'm very concerned about it. I'm working on a paper right now that will publish this fall. Are we about ready to repeat history again? And I think we are. So first thing, we look at concentration levels. We have more commercial real estate concentration in the banks today than we did pre-2008 and 9. We got about $4.1 trillion of total commercial real estate debt if you include the construction loans. If you back out, uh, and that's like the Reese, um, Victor Catalog does a good job with that. They're just acquired by Moody's. If you back out the eight, 900 million of construction loans like the MBA does, it's about 3.2 trillion. Uh, and we're about 55% of that's in the banks. So Dodd-Frank didn't solve that problem. We're back to the concentration. Uh, CMBS is doing well. But it's at about 100, 110, maybe 120 billion of the 230 billion it used to be. And what's filled the gap is all these alternative lenders that are not regulated, the MES debt lenders. And so we've got a lot more leverage in there that the regulators haven't been looking at or anticipating. So I'm very concerned about the leverage. And is that where you see the increased debt issue is in these alternative financing, the MES debt? Because it seems like uh, the lenders, and we do CMBS loans and bank loans, it doesn't seem like underwriting has been really relaxed. No, yeah. no. And it's an interesting question to ask is where the underwritings relax. I just interviewed a number of uh, major banks, uh, and went regional, uh, community, and, and national. I said, you know, we always hear this in the Fed survey of mm -hmm. lenders, you know, that they're relaxing underwriting. Give me, give me a concrete example where underwriting's being relaxed. So one, one regional bank uh, did a real good job, and they said, I'll give you two examples. So in a construction loan today, we, we see deals being originated by large banks coming down to us to participate that have no bonded contractor requirements and no retainage requirements. So generally, you get a bonded bonding on a contractor to ensure they do what they want, or maybe you're not certain about their capitalization. So if you're waiving bondability because either they don't want it, they can't do it, you better be retaining stuff for a year or so afterwards to make sure all the things got through on the punch list. And they're seeing both of those items go away. So I think when we hear relaxing of underwriting. And that's for commercial loans. Right? Yeah, 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 commercial loans. Not residential real, homes. No, not on yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. more yeah. the multifamily shopping center office right. building type stuff. So that's a good example of where the underwriting's deteriorating. And I think the other is, you know, you can really leverage these deals up. And the other part of it is, what's the value? Mm -hmm. So, you know, tell me a deal you've seen recently, Michael, where the appraiser finally didn't figure out he better appraise it for what the pro contract price is. Mm -hmm. So if your contract price is on five and a half or five cap rates today, and those are going to six or six and a half and they're, and they're not and we see that adjust and you don't see the NOI growth maybe these values are at the peak of the cycle maybe but do you see that there's developers or investors have been overzealous you know I don't see at least in the deals that we do in the southeast I don't see buyers really overpaying it seems uh, for at least, maybe I can't get them to overpay me. I'm a terrible broker for my sellers. Right? No, I'm not. I'm doing a good job. You're a good broker. Uh, but uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like we're really overbuilding, are we? Or we're overpaying? No, I think where we're at in this cycle is I call it the complacency part of the cycle. Mm -hmm. We're comfortable with where we are. We're comfortable with a five to six cap rate range. We're comfortable with there's a there's a debt structure out there. You can find a lender. You can find a permanent option. And what happens is generally something disrupts that. Is it tariffs? 
Is it the November elections mm -hmm. uh, reversing the tax code? Is it the Fed continuing to march up and make the, make these debt deals more expensive and we can't afford it? It's usually that disruption. So I think we're in a comfort zone, and I, I call it, psychologists have a, a study on this area, they call it recency bias. Mm -hmm. And it, you get you get bias towards what's currently happening, you're recent and you're not looking forward. And I think that's the risk we're at in the cycle. Everything's comfortable, and we gotta be looking forward to see what could disrupt that. Yeah, I, I see some of that, you know, where I see sellers that, hey, do you think this is a good time for you to sell? Maybe take some cards off the table uh, in in your in your in your business, and and someone no, everything looks good right now. Everything feels good. Um, and to that point, where do you think the cycle is? How, how much longer do you think these good times keep rolling? It seems like all the indicators that you talked about in the, in the first segment are very positive. Where where does it change? Yeah. So uh, we're in baseball season, we're happy in Atlanta, yeah. you know, um, and whatnot. I think we're at least uh, in or through the seventh inning stretch. And I think the answer to where we end up in the cycle is honestly what happens on November 6th. Mm -hmm. And I, I, we were joking a little bit before that I think we need to pay attention to what's the business headline on November 7th. And I think it's gonna be one of the two following. Uh, uh, back to work making America great again, if the Republicans retain control and we don't, business doesn't worry about the tax acts and everything being reversed out, or it's going to be, oh my God, we're all going to hell again. Uh, the economy is going to hell again. And yeah. I honestly think it's that we're, we're that bipolarized yeah. in the economy. Um, but the foundations I'd pay attention to, look at things like the National Federation of Independent Small Business mm -hmm. Optimism Index. Look beyond the government data. The NFIB, which for 45 years has been tracking small business, what's bugging them, how happy are they? It just set a 45-year record in the history of the survey for optimism, even with the threat of tariffs and whatnot. So uh, look at the ADP numbers. Mm -hmm. 165 of those 230,000 jobs were small business. That's what's propelling this country today. And we haven't even begun to fully realize the benefits of the Tax Act. Most of the Tax Act, people were understanding and digesting it the first half of this year. Mm -hmm. Businesses were kind of making the planning strategic decisions with their accountants, attorneys, and whatnot. Those actions and decisions will be deployed here the second half and through next year and probably into 2021. So if Congress doesn't reverse and we don't reverse the tax acts, I think things we really see the stimulus come from that. The benefit we've seen so far has really been deregulation. Businesses and NFIB will tell you the number one thing that's made them optimistic about growing and expanding is the deregulation that's, that's happened so far. Yeah, regardless how you feel about our president, the economy has just been incredible. And it's the, and you're saying, I guess, it's the deregulation, it's the tax reduction, it's the 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 change in ta and changing the tariffs and trade 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 wars there. You know, all the things that he's doing uh, are really helping the economy. And you feel like that, hey, if if Congress changes, if if the Democrats get more power, that that could really change very quickly. I think it is. It's, it, you know, the economy is very psychological in orientation. It's, yeah. a, it's a game of psychology. And you can look at, when you look at NFIB, the National Association of Home Builders surveys, all the business and consumer optimism indices, all the way up until November of 2016, they were struggling, they were, they were down. And after the elections, the optimism, you know, the psychology was a switch has been turned. Yeah. And it's, it's set new records almost every quarter. So the psychology is clearly whether you're pro the president or not pro the president, the psychology is very much with him in his policies. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, we have had uh, properties under contract where the investor said to us that, look, uh, while I'm in due diligence during an election, and if it goes one way, I'm canceling. If it goes the other way, I'm in. Yeah. You know, so you're seeing direct, quick economic impact on it. But how many economists would, do you think, would agree with you and that 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 who's in, the Democrats, Republicans in power, and maybe things have changed this at this point. But how many would agree with that? Because I know you're not a political person; <laughs> you're an economist, right? So you're looking at the numbers. Uh, so how many economists kind of think that way, if you will? That for the president, or that, or, that, that, or maybe not for the president, but think that if 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 the president's gone, or or the, the elections in November change uh, change the uh, status. Uh, that, that it will have an impact. You think some people would say, nah. I think too many economists are, are naive in their orientation, yeah. that the politics and the psychology don't matter. They go very much hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, my time when I was at the Fed, 2005 to 10, mm -hmm. I was kind of that, that rogue industry guy that would knock on the door of the, you know, the chairman's office and say, you know, I know all your board economists tell you this, but none of them have 
bought a house, made a mortgage, bought a car, and they're writing policy on all these things. We're your industry people. Let me explain a construction loan. Uh, let me explain securitization and why we couldn't do an RTC type deal. The, it's, they're largely academic. They haven't been practicing in the industry like, like yourself or, or me. Most of my career has been a practicing mm -hmm. person that, you know, I, I figured I had two things I could do. I could become a weatherman or an economist, and I figured I'd be a little more, more accurate than the weatherman, so I became an economist <laughs> in my, when I grew up. I'm glad you did. Um, but I, I think they're naive, mm -hmm. uh, very much naive at it. And I think you need only look at, you know, last week in the Supreme Court nomination hearings and how bipolarized this, this country is. And my fear is that neither entity can really afford uh, a decision to go against them in November. And what does that mean in our psychology? Yeah. Well, I think it's real interesting. And, and I'd like to get some other ideas from you of what you think could go wrong and what could go right. Because we're always trying to you know, skate where their puck is going in commercial real estate or real estate uh, in general. So stay with us. We'll take a short break. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Are you looking for proven property management and facilities management education? Visit BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I, Building Owners and Managers Institute International. They are the trusted source for education in the property and facilities industry. Visit BOMI.org. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I am Michael Bull, and the, this segment is brought to you by Real Crowd. It is crowdfunding with the professionals. Check them out at realcrowd.com. Well, today we're talking about the economic outlook and the impact on real estate. My guest is KC Conway. He's a senior economist with CCIM Institute. He's here in Studio One. And KC, we're talking about and a political thing that could make a change in the uh, economics and in, and in, in turn in real estate. Um, what else could be, well, let's first go with the negative things, <laughs> what, what else could be a headwind in commercial real estate moving right. forward? So I'll have to tell you, I gotta have one prop, Michael. So, you know, when I do my forecasting or whatnot, the reason I'm so accurate is the University of Alabama, when I joined them last year, they gave me these magic crimson red uh, economic forecasting shoes. So these, these helps, I brought my magic shoes to, to, to help me today on the, on the forecast there. So on the, what goes wrong, I've had three things that are primary, most people, you know, can deduce these pretty, pretty easily. Um, so I think the tariffs and trade wars have been on our mind mm -hmm. for, for a while, all through this summer, is it's kind of ratcheted up. Um, so if they don't get resolved, you know, we go back through the history of tariffs and trade wars. I mean, go back and trace the roots of the, the Great Depression that started with smooth holly and tariffs and trying to, you know, protect agricultural industry that spilled over into the, in the whole Great Depression. So histor history has told us these never play out well and eventually kind of reverse course. So we are playing a little bit with fire. I do think, though, that having the agreement, the new uh, NAFTA II or USMCA, we can play with the YMCA music, mm -hmm. um, is a very good thing because what it does is it brings North America back as a trading manufacturing block with lots of commodities, lots of skill set, intellectual property. It is a real formidable threat um, to China. So I think that potentially brings China eventually around. I think China's gonna be a year or longer to come around. I think it brings Europe around pretty quickly as well. So I think having that deal done really reduces the what could go wrong on tariffs and trade wars. Um, and I think the reason that people forget, it's not so much inflationary, it's supply chain today. Mm -hmm. So more about what we're, gonna, we're getting a lesson on is how intricate supply chain is. So if you're in the building business, whether it's steel, whether you're a home builder, most of the, the faux granite and stuff that you get and put in bathrooms and whatnot, that all comes from China. That's Mar faux granite? I thought it was real. <laughs> faux granite, it didn't come from Rome, Georgia, <laughs> up the road here. Um, you know, so a lot of these, these products and things, uh, another one is all the batteries in, the, in cars. Mm -hmm. So there's a guy out there, a company called Cobol 67, and he's working to kind of corner all of the uh, future options on Cobalt 67, which is a primary element that's needed in all these electric batteries for cars and whatnot. So, you know, if, if you don't have that element in Canada and, and Canada and China have 80% of the world's supply of Cobalt uh, to that we know of today. Mm -hmm. So it's about logistics, it's about supply chain, less about inflation than in, in prior times. The second thing is, I think, uh, looking at the Fed and, 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 and the liquidity of kind of financing. 
we know that commercial real estate functions very well when it's liquid, when there's right. financing, when there's debt. And we're in that comfort zone right now. It all works really good until it doesn't. So the Fed really needs to pay attention to what it's doing because as it raises interest rates, it puts pressure on emerging markets, which are 40% of our economy. We rely, they're 40% of our consumers uh, because they've been on quantitative easing and they've got a whole certain amount of dollar denominated assets or the commodity is traded in dollars like oil in, uh, in agriculture. So if we're raising rates, their currency's devaluing, it takes more to buy our goods. So mm -hmm. the Fed's really got to pay attention and that spills over into really what I call the currency crisis risk. We saw it uh, spark up with Italy over the summer. We saw it spread to Turkey and it's a great risk of spilling into um, Argentina, Latin America, and Africa. So. You know, we're going to get a history lesson on currency crisis is what could go wrong. And I think the third thing is really the inflation story has been undertold, um, dismissed and swept under the carpet. We have it in housing. We have it in commodities. We have it in construction materials um, and now exacerbated by the hurricane storms from last year and again this year. So I think the inflation number is very under uh, undertold and underemphasized. And I think that's what keeps the Fed with their foot on the accelerator to raise rates. So is that going to cause them? It sounds like for what you're saying that we should expect inflation to to increase. Uh, I don't see anything stopping it at this point. So does that mean interest rates will will stay will keep rising? Yeah, so good question. So this week was the anniversary of Paul Volcker's testimony to Congress in 1982, where he said, I think I overdid it. <laughs> the Fed overdid it. The Fed always over and underdoes it. They're always late to start the rise and overdo it. And they're always late to, to reduce it and stop it. Um, just like in 2016, they started in 2014 or 2004 and they went to mid 2006. And I, I did a briefing to Chairman Bernanke and said, you know, you're part of this subprime mortgage crisis. 16 rate hikes is making people figure out how do I refinance these mortgages. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the Fed has on, on pause. It's got the dual mandate. It's got full employment um, and maybe more. And especially if we see the unemployment rates drop into the mid to low 3%, which I think we could see as, as early as this Friday's report, definitely by the end of the year. You have full employment. You now have wage inflation with you know, we saw it last year with Walmart and Target raising the minimum wage in, minimum, in many states. Now we see Amazon and others getting it up to an affordable wage rate. That trickles through on their construction inflation, housing inflation, whether it's apartments or rental. Inflation is systemic in the system now. And I think it's running well above three, probably in a three and a half percent range. Okay. And as we're talking about things that could put you possible headwinds to commercial real estate and, and real estate in general. so rising rates, is that one of the potential headwinds? I think it absolutely is. And I think you have to understand the rising rates where it ripple effects through. So for most of us, we haven't seen our credit card rates move <laughs> at all. They're always high. Right. <laughs> but we do on the things like mortgages, autos. So if you went to buy a car, so your finance rates on a four or five year mortgage on a car today are 75 basis points higher than they were a year ago with the same credit score. On a mortgage, you're, on a home, you're 75 to 100 basis points higher right now. So what that translates to on a car payment, you're about 35 to 50 $50 a month higher on a home payment. You're about 100 to 150, approaching $200, depending on the price point. Now we're getting to real dollars where you're talking three to $400 of disposable after-tax income. That begins to eat up the impact of the tax cut. Hmm, interesting. And now, and you bring up the auto business. That's a big part of the of the U.S. economy, right? And if we have rising interest rates there, and we have higher steel prices, does that impact our economy moving forward? It certainly does. So. Um, you know, and the, and the dynamic in the autos isn't just, you know, the components that go in there, but it's also the technology. So one of the things I like, I, I have USA Insurance, great company, and I was talking with them recently about auto rates with my daughters, one of them having had another wreck, and I said, so, you know, what, what cars are highest and lowest in insurance rates and are you having the most problems with? And they, they uh, you know, kind of said, well, one of the ones that we're having the most problems with, and we don't think you're going to buy your daughter this one, is, is a Tesla vehicle. All these electro electronic cars, the batteries are underneath them. And so you go over a speed bump or hit a curb, you short the whole thing out. In many cases, the cost of repair is a total, it's a complete total loss of the car. So the technology components, while the cars are safer, when you wreck them up, it's not like the old days, my 1967 Mustang, I go to the junkyard and buy a new bumper or straighten it out or a new fender for 50 bucks. Yeah. You know, it's thousands of dollars to repair these cars. And the airbags alone are, you know, going to be over another thousand bucks to replace them. Oh, it's going to be like a boat, break out another thousand, right? <laughs> I asked my insurance agent, what was the chance that my 16 year old started driving and was going to have a wreck? The percentage, he said, 100%. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so, so those are some of the headwinds. What could go right? What could go 
positive for real estate and commercial real estate moving forward? So what can go right? Real estate does really well when we have disruption, right? We don't want it when it's really capital driven, but when it's systemic. So technology is changing real estate in big ways. Mm -hmm. And it's creating things like adaptive reuse. We recently published a paper with CCIM Institute on that and how, how strong that is. Look at office. Look at the growth of WeWork. Mm -hmm. So WeWork now is the single largest office tenant in Atlanta, in New York. Five of the other top 10 cities, it's in second or third place as the largest tenant. What, what does that mean and how do, we, how do we adapt to that? Does it make it better, does it make it worse? Is there more demand, less demand? Does it shift demand? Look at industrial. Industrial's the new retail. Mm -hmm. We don't go to stores to buy the goods, we put them in warehouses, so we're having this incredible growth in, in warehouses and supply chain, and we're a huge beneficiary of that in the southeast and the mid-Atlantic and the Gulf Coast regions from what's happening with our ports and supply chain. On housing, people may not realize it, but we actually have two subdivisions here in Atlanta right now that are being built, new subdivisions, where all the homes are for rent. They're not mm -hmm. gonna be sold. So we're going to see tremendous shifts in housing, whether it's that 11-foot wide product for millennials. So tremendous opportunity for those that can kind of step back, study how the millennial workforce that's, that's really maturing and now into its 30s uh, is going to change the workforce in, in, in how they shop and how they spend, how we Uber everything, what it means for cars and parking garages. What are we going to do with parking garages? What do we do with a, a vacant mall? We're debating that with Gwinnett Place Mall right now that opened up when I was uh, graduating from memory university and I still think of it as a new mall mm -hmm. um, you know we're seeing malls being converted to, to warehouse space so there's just tremendous opportunity and I would I would recommend people look and study hard at two elements look at the disruption that blockchain is going to do and permeate through everything in our economy and what it means is in real estate in our business, it means it can become much more efficient. It can eat away at some of these cost pressures that we're looking at. It means the elimination of intermediaries. We don't, we don't need all of these internal ledgers that we have to validate, like title companies and a bank to hold money and escrow agents. It's all a, a virtual single shared source ledger. Huge impact in terms of the cost and the efficiency of transacting real estate. That's a big benefit. And the second is how logistics ripple effects through everything. So, you know, how, how are goods gonna come to your house? What's that last mile mean? Is there an advantage being in one location versus another location for that last mile delivery? Uh, what about Uber and driverless transportation? So I think logistics and blockchain are the big disrupting opportunities that mean a lot for us. Yeah, well, I'd like to get your opinion on some of the, the various sectors and how you think the, the economy and everything going on in the world could impact those sectors moving forward. So we'll do that right after her break. I'm Michael Bull. Stay with us. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Promote your business to the U.S. commercial real estate industry. Click advertise at the show website, CREshow.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. This is incredible video training for commercial agents and brokers. I know because I created it. Uh, now, today we have a show that's uh, fantastic. We have Casey Conway here. He's the senior economist uh, with CCIM Institute. And we're talking about the economy and the impact on real estate moving forward. So I'd like to ask you about some of the sectors and some brief comments on, on some of the sectors. So I guess everybody loves uh, industrial so we'll go there in a, mo in a moment but what do you think about retail i mean that's the one that people seem to be a lot of concern there's a lot of headlines what do you think yeah so you know we hear the term retail apocalypse and mm -hmm. i'm not in that camp and i'll give you a couple of good examples of where we're not in retail apocalypse so um uh prudential their mm -hmm. mall portfolio um uh reit group uh recently reported in their second quarter that for the first time in their, all their mall portfolio. They don't have a single empty department store or big box store. They've released them, repurposed them, and not with another department store, but it could be a Top Golf, it could be something more experiential, it could have been subdivided. Mm -hmm. But that tells us that we're finding alternatives, we're finding adaptive reuse for retail. The second one is my friends at TREP, which do a good job tracking everything on securitization, they had a report they published in, in July on retail and what they found was that the NOI per square foot of all the securitized retail loans is back to where it was in 2004 and 5. And again they noted a lot of that 
is because of adaptive reuse, more experiential retail coming in and filling it. So for those that can look at the fundamentals of retail, look at those good in-town in locations, look at what they can do in adaptive reuse, it's not, it's not a bad story. And we're seeing innovative new basic retail concepts. The PGA Superstore by one of Home Depot's co-founders here in Atlanta is having tremendous success um, where it's part selling stuff and part experiential, uh, even with daycare. Go to a new car dealership. They've got daycare, they've got Starbucks, they have all kinds of experiential retail going on there. Another one I'll give is I, I tout is Batteries Plus. Mm -hmm. Batteries Plus is opening about another three dozen stores uh, this year and next year. You know, when your phone and your battery device goes, you don't have time to go online and hunt for it. You need to know where a store is and get up and running right away. So there are a lot of concepts beyond gyms or churches or, and I'm not talking about the fried chicken, but actually religious organizations that are going into, into retail and backfilling it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so look at that. So I'm not in the down camp on retail. I think it's reinventing itself. I think we've, we've hit the bottom and we're really coming back out of a new, a new type of retail. Yeah, I have to stop by the battery store on the way home. My garage door <laughs> opener is dead. I won't be able to get in my house, you know. You know, who knows where my house key is? We'll find that, right? Well, what about industrial? We teased it. What do you think there? Yeah, so industrial, and, and there's two stories on industrial. Mm -hmm. um, so one is the, the big e-commerce fulfillment that's got all the equipment in there, and they're now going to like 40 foot clear and, and higher ceiling heights to do all the e-commerce fulfillment. Believe it or not, that's only about 10% of the transactions in the leases. The other 80 or 90% is uh, you know not all businesses need 30 foot clear and they all don't need 500,000 square feet. So a lot of these older business parks um, that are in town, good location, are doing real well. A local guy, Sim Dowdy with um, King Industrial, they study that and have documented that you know in markets like Atlanta and Dallas, as much as 80% of the transactions, leases and, and, and sales, are to these smaller older buildings where companies that have recovered that small business growth, it could be a plumbing contractor, a housing contractor, uh, you know, could be some sort of supplier, IT guy. Mm -hmm. They need 10,000 square feet or 15 or 20,000, maybe with a little bit of office space. So those that are kind of closer in, um, good in interstate infrastructure are very healthy. So the industrial I think will continue. Don't overlook, I think the value add opportunity is that older low clear ceiling height. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to build it. You can't get it zoned. Costs are off the roof, um, so look at replacement costs. So I think the, the story in industrial is you do a replacement cost analysis to realize when we've gone too far. Some of these new buildings, you know, you're looking at $150, $200 a square foot or more to build. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, I'm about to bring to market a industrial complex. It's just like that. It's close in, Alfred, Atlanta, great location, and the rents are really under market. There's a lot of area to raise rents, and I think you're right. And there's a lot of the small uh, businesses that uh, that thrive in these in these buildings, and they stay for a very long time. Well, let's talk about office. A lot of changes there. What What do you think? Yeah, I think the, I think the model. Uh, you know, I wrote a paper earlier this year about the Amazon HQ2 and mm -hmm. where they were going to go and what that meant. And you know, we've been dealing with the term densification in office for too long. And the millennials, when they hear it, they get upset because they think we're we're, we're suggesting they have a smaller IQ, and it's not that. They just have a smaller cubicle. <laughs> so um, we're moving from densification to I really think this co-working environment, and it's spilling over an industrial. We're now starting to see co-warehouses where companies are saying, you know what, if I don't have to tie up capital in terms of, you know, a lease and people and FF&E and I can just co-work, share this thing mm -hmm. and I have my cloud server somewhere else, this is a pretty good business model. And there's something that's really behind it. It's called lease accounting. At the end of next year, lease accounting takes effect. And there's no grandfathering. Every company that has a long-term lease or lease has to put it clearly on its balance sheet that could create some huge financial disruption in terms of credit ratings of major companies uh, that have a lot of long-term leases. It also is gonna serve as a disincentive for companies to be on long-term leases like we're accustomed to in office. So my forecast, my new wild forecast is, uh, I'll get my red shoes out again, <laughs> is that Amazon's HQ2 is not gonna be in one city. I think that between now and the end of the year, they're, they're exploring an option with someone, a co-sharing uh, entity like a WeWork, to say, what if we had, uh, you provide us with 10,000 offices across five cities in the eastern, southeastern United States where our IT, our sales, our engineering folks could travel to, and, um, and, we'll, and we'll provide a credit enhancement to that. You think that's crazy? There's, al there's already a loan proposal in process on something of that nature of the size of an Amazon to do a, a co-working. So I think Amazon HQ2 could be a virtual headquarters that totally disrupts the office world. And we're already seeing it when you see markets like Atlanta and New York where WeWork is the single largest tenant. 
Well, one of the interesting things about that, I believe, would be, hey, didn't the open floor plan, wasn't that designed or, or, or sold on the, that we can interact, that we get more done together and if they and if a company like that just spreads everybody out and they're working at home and they're working everywhere how does that what happened to that i thought we all wanted to work yeah. together and it's, get more done it, it's a great question and they may all say you know there's a there's a great football game at athens this weekend let's all uh, have a co-sharing office in athens on friday so we can go to the game or something right mm -hmm. uh you know we're over in alabama it's going to be interesting the millennial workforce is going to completely redefine what we do in office space. Mm -hmm. It's already happening, and I don't think we're even in the first inning of what that means. But I think co-working, really pay attention to that, what that means. It's hoteling office space. So your outlook then for office investment moving forward? I, I'm not, I, I think that unless you have a deal locked up with a tenant long-term, I think those long-term leases are gonna get harder to come by, whether it's mm -hmm. a bank or a law firm. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're an SEC filing company, mm -hmm. they're gonna have to record that liability. And that 10, 20 year office lease is a big liability on the balance sheet they may not want. So two things I think are gonna happen. We could see either the co-working model explode or we're gonna cross property types, retail, office, industrial, see shorter term duration leases, which means we could have a very a very significant impact in the permanent market. Do life companies in CMBS wanna do an office building with five year leases instead of 10 and 20 year leases yeah. or a life company? Those yeah. are the things that, the, that forward looking connect those dots. Those are the yeah. big questions. Well, the FASB lease accounting changes. It seems like the companies that we talk to say, no, we're not gonna let accounting tail, the accounting tail, wag the dog, whatever you call that, you drive the economics because, you know, we still want great build out. We still want great financing of this office space, even a, an open space, we work space with the, with the exposed ceilings and all that. It's still very expensive to build out. So, uh, and one of the things I heard you say when you spoke at uh, uh, Riga with me, and I, and it's the first time I've heard someone uh, mention this, was that the FASB lease accounting could cause some companies to want shorter leases, and it could cause some co companies, in my mind, to maybe think about owning more of their properties if they have a lot of real estate right. rather than leasing. What might that do to the single tenant net lease investment market? There's a, a big market of people buying these single tenant properties uh, with long-term leases. Might those leases get shorter? Might some of those properties with the longer leases all of a sudden be a, a commodity that's hard to find? Absolutely, I think that is a big question mark. and. Um, you know, when you when you when you think about that, that whole net lease market drives on a long-term duration lease, and I think companies may look at um, owning the asset. And here's why: in the in the FASB lease accounting situation, so we know that we can calculate very easily the liability of the lease, right? It's an easy cash flow calculation. The asset calculation is a, fa a very prescriptive FASB accounting formula that has nothing to do with market rent. So you could greatly miss the true value either when the market's rising or declining and over or understate the asset side mm -hmm. of that right to use thing. And, and that's the thing that hasn't been flushed out at all. Um, and compounding that as well is on the heels of that parallel to it is the banks have Cecil accounting to deal with mm -hmm. where they have to do life of loan uh, forecasting for their loan loss reserves. So now they've got to pay attention to leases and rollover and year by year reforecast the liability of that of that loan on that office building or that mm -hmm. shopping center. So you could have banks sitting there trying to redesign financial products that say, well if my if my reserve allowance goes up, I may have a feature in my loan that causes you to put some more more capital up there. Mm -hmm. So I think you know Cecil Cecil, the loan loss reserve accounting on banks, the lease accounting, none of this stuff is rooted in market rent, yeah. in market numbers. That scares me to death. Yeah, and if you want to know more about the FASB lease accounting, go to commercialrealestateshow.com and just check, uh, search FASB, and we'll put a link if you're watching, uh, listening to the show on our website uh, or video or podcast. Well, let's uh, ask you about uh, multifamily. Yeah. You know, multifamily's had a great ride. Uh, we're starting to see rents um, pretty high on these, these new Class A apartments, and it seems like that's most of what's being built. Some people are thinking in some cities maybe they're overbuilt. I uh, also think about affordability. You know, can these tenants afford to pay? And if they have to make eighty or hundred thousand dollars to be able to afford to rent an apartment, how many can do that? What's your outlook for multifamily? 
Yeah, so we could give a couple good quotes. Go back to Tom Sawyer, Huck mm -hmm. Finn days. The, the news of my demise has been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> I think the demise yeah. of multifamily has been greatly exaggerated. It is for, I think the play today is secondary markets and it's value add mm -hmm. because that's where you can deliver the affordable feature. Yeah. Uh, a lot of school districts won't let you in major markets or secondary markets let you build new multifamily because they don't want the strain on the school system. So yeah. if you can find a good multifamily project, large in size, in a good school district, that's a no-brainer type of play. Um, mm -hmm. We're seeing adaptively reuse deals where these things are being bought and completely renovated. It's something like 60 to 70% of replacement costs new. So I think that's one. The secondary markets are very healthy. We waited a long time to see this growth and this recovery emanate out from the primary markets. So whether you go to uh, you know, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, or a Cheyenne, Wyoming, or a Tucson, Arizona, or a Nashville, um, or Ocala, Florida, these markets are doing very well. And they're benefiting. Um, you take a market like in Polk County between Orlando and Tampa, it, you have Nucor there. It is now one of the major logistics supply uh, center chains. It also is the largest steel manufacturing center in the United States now, in Polk County, Florida. Who would have figured that? Mm -hmm. So I think secondary markets, value add opportunities. I think the new construction in, in um, uh, expensive urban primary markets is going to be challenged mm -hmm. and we're going to have a big conflict go between local government officials zoning approval people and the developers to make the numbers work mm -hmm. you're going to have to innovate innovative product like we're seeing Selig and them doing on the west end here in Atlanta 11 foot wide products 600 square feet and to the lenders out there that don't think that the value is there and you don't have a comp for a 11 foot wide 600 five to 600 square foot three hundred thousand dollar condo or townhome Go talk to the people at Selig. They have a 200 wait list for 45 units that they're going to deliver immediately. Mm -hmm. So I think product innovation is going to be used. We're going to see more micro units. Mm -hmm. um, we're also seeing people are forgetting that on the NOI growth, in excess of 30% of the lease up in new Class A multifamily is to baby boomers and empty nesters. Mm -hmm. They maybe have sold a home. They still want to have something in the area, but they want to rent and they want to be urban and, and maybe travel in and out of Atlanta but not have to deal with the traffic and maybe have another place somewhere else. So I, I, I'm not uh, down at all in multifamily. Yeah. We have good solid rents. We don't have overbuilding occurring at all. Yeah. I look at the jobs to permits ratio. You know, a normal healthy is in the five to six range, and we, we're having like seven to eight percent, seven to eight to one ratio number. So pay attention to those fundamentals. That's great. Well, what would you leave our audience with thinking about the economy and commercial real estate uh, moving forward? Yeah, so I think uh, the big wild card right now is we got to get through the November elections. I think a lot of capital is on hold. I think a lot of capital is trying to accelerate decisions. I know of a couple of clients and people we advise at the university that, have, that are trying to accelerate a sale now to take advantage of the capital, low capital gains and the property appreciation before the elections. So I think we got to get through, see whatever happens and, and how we adapt. Um, I think the things that's happening on the tariffs is very encouraging. This new NAFTA to USMCA deal is very encouraging. I think it brings Europe to the table very quickly before the end of the year, and I think China within a year after that. Um, the fundamentals are very much in place with commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. What I worry about is you got to go back and pay attention to if interest rates rise and cap rates rise, that old IRV cap rate formula, there's only one thing that can mitigate those two effects and that is you gotta have NOI growth. Focus on NOI growth and sensitivity of NOI growth in your deals. Great, good information, KC, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, thanks, Michael. And if you like more information, check out the CCIM Institute at CCIM.com, and then uh, we'll have uh, more information at commercialrealestateshow.com, and let us know what you think. Uh, we appreciate your comments and uh, sharing the show, and uh, please do reach out to us. And uh, be sure and join us next week. Until then, be sure you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions, Bomi.org, Property and Facility Management Education, Real Crowd, Crowdfunding with Professionals, The News Funnel, Real Estate News Personalized, CommercialAgentSuccess.com, Video Training from Michael Bull, to access these great companies or for more videos, podcasts, and articles, visit CREshow.com.